All right, how many uh, movie fans do we have in the house? How many of you like to watch movies? Almost everybody. Okay, all right, good. Well, um, I, I wonder if you um, have ever thought you knew a line from a movie, but you actually didn't. All right, so, so here's one from Forrest Gump. How many of you, this sounds right to you, Mama always said, life is like a box of chocolates. How many of that sounds right to you? Now look, half the church is at the beach today, so the rest of you are going to have to help me. How many of that sounds right to you? All right, all right. Well, the only problem is, is it's wrong. Here's what he actually said. Mama always said life was like a box of chocolates. I don't know about you, I've misquoted that like for a long time. All right, here's another one, filled of dreams. If you build it, they will come. I've heard everybody say that. I've said that. However, that's not the line from the movie. The line is, if you build it, he will come. I didn't know that. I thought it was a bunch of them. Apollo 13, I guarantee you you've misquoted this as I have. Houston, we have a problem. How many of you have said that exactly like that? Houston, we have a problem. That's not the line. Here's the line. Ah, Houston, we've had a problem. Did you know that? See, aren't you glad you came? It's worth it already. <laughs> All right. The, for you classic movie fans, Casablanca. Play it again, Sam. Anybody remember the movie Casablanca? Play it again, Sam. That's not the line. Here's the line. Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. He never says, play it again, Sam. That's just what we say. All right, a couple more. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. For all you Disney fans. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Come on, you know you quote it just like that. You know you do. Don't lie. Here's what it actually says. Magic mirror on the wall, who's the fairest one of all? I've said that wrong my whole life. And now here's my favorite one, and so I saved it for last. The Empire Strikes Back. How many sci-fi people we got? I'm a sci-fi people. I'm a, I'm a sci-fi people. I count as more than one. All right, Luke, I'm your. Remember when Darth Vader reveals that he's Luke's father, and like the like the universe explodes, like the ends of everything. Star Wars. Luke, I'm your father. That is not what he says. He says, "No, I am your father." <laughs> That's what he actually says. When somebody told me that, I said, uh-uh. And they said, yes, it doesn't even say. I said, no, it, I'm telling you, he says, Luke, I'm your brother. I went back, Googled the video clip, and watched it, and was in horrified disbelief. I'm like, this is wrong. They've, they've fixed it. Somebody has gone in and edited the movie. I'm telling you, he said, Luke, I've, I could not believe I misquoted that scene. I saw that movie when I was a child in the back of a pickup truck in a drive-in theater. And I had quoted that all my life. I was shocked. Now, you may be thinking, so what? <laughs> what does it matter that we misquote a few movie lines? Well, the truth is, it doesn't matter at all. But it does show us that we all have the ability to see and hear something in person and still have misperceptions about it. So here's what I'm just going to guess. If we can see and hear something in person and still have misperceptions about it, do you think it's possible that we could have some misperceptions about things we cannot see and we cannot hear? 
I don't know, like God. We can't see God. We can't hear God. Do you think we might have some misperceptions about God? Well, the truth is we all start out in life with misperceptions about God. Now, that's a lot bigger deal than just getting the movie line wrong. If you start with the wrong thoughts about God, you will also have wrong thoughts about yourself and about others and about life in general. This is exactly what happened to the people in Acts chapter 14. They had huge misperceptions about God. Now, this summer, uh, we're in our summer series. We're studying the book of Acts. Uh, For those of you who may be new or maybe you've missed a few weeks, we've called this series Viral because we've been looking at how the good news about Jesus and how the church spread so fast to so many cities and countries in the first 30 years of the church's existence, which spans the entire book of Acts. The church started in the city where Jesus died. And then the church began to spread because persecution got so intense, Christians would run for their lives. And when they would run for their lives and escape to another city, the believers that ran for their life would start a church there. So they weren't doing it on purpose. It was just the effect of what was going on. Then God began to speak to a few leaders in the church that he wanted them to actually, on purpose, take the gospel outside of the Jewish world, which everybody else was called Gentiles. That's us. You're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. It's everybody else. To take the gospel to the Gentiles, one of the most well-known leaders that God spoke to about this is Paul the Apostle. So led by the Holy Spirit... Paul the Apostle and Barnabas went from city to city planting churches so they'd be able to tell people in each city about Jesus. Now, I just want you to think about this for a minute. The entire purpose that these leaders went out and started churches was so that people in that city and country and that culture and that language might know about Jesus. That is the fundamental purpose of every church. Now, now we sometimes get that confused with other things. Last week, Pastor Mark talked about how they went to Antioch. But then the Jews had them kicked out of the city. And at the beginning of chapter 14, where we're going to start today, they, they ran away from Antioch running for their life. They went to a city named Iconium. And then um, there became a great division in that city because some people were for Jesus and some people were against Jesus. And it caused a, a big dispute. And actually, there was a plan to secretly... Uh, uh, kidnap Paul the Apostle and kill him. Paul found out about it and he and his group ran again from Iconium to a city named Lystra. And that's what we're going to look at today, Acts 14, verse 8. If you have a, a Bible with you, if you don't, we have the verse on the screen. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. All right, so this guy couldn't walk. He had been that way from birth. He had never walked. So here's what I want you to see. This is not some, some uh, a salesman, some televangelist on TV selling a product of miracle something that you send your gift in and he'll send. That's not what this is. This isn't a sleight of hand trick. This isn't a, oh, we prayed for them and they felt bad and now they feel better. Well, maybe they were going to get better anyway. This is a miracle. This guy had never walked his entire life and everybody in the city knew it. He had never walked. So, so let's see what happens. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul was talking about Jesus. 
Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. This is an absolute certifiable miracle of God. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, look at this reaction though. They shouted in the Lyconian language. You haven't lived till you've spoken Lyconian. The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, you didn't even know Zeus had a priest, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. All right. If you have something to write with, let me give you a few thoughts this morning from this passage and this occurrence of the church going viral, and now it's landed in this pagan city, and there's a miracle that's happened, and now the city's all in uproar about Zeus and Hermes have come. What does this mean? Number one, everyone has an image of God in their mind. Everyone. Even atheists have an image of God in their mind, they have an image of a God they think doesn't exist. They say, that God right there, that's the one that doesn't exist. Everyone has an image of God in their mind. Little children have a picture of God in their mind. You may have heard a story about a little girl who was drawing a picture, and the teacher asked, what are you drawing? She said, God. She said, honey, nobody knows what God looks like. She said, they will after I draw my picture. Even children have an idea, an image of God in their head. The people in Lystra did also. You do and I do. Number two, it's easy to have the wrong image of God. And God knows this, so in Leviticus 19.4 he says, Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourself. I am the Lord your God. So not only are we not supposed to worship created things, we have to be careful in creating images of God because we so easily get it wrong. You can't contain God in a picture, in a painting, in a statue, in a building, in in a work of art. Only the heavens declare the glory of God. It's easy to get the wrong image of God. So where does our image of God come from? Our image of God comes from how we're raised. If you had good parents, maybe it's not that far of a jump for you to get a real clear picture of who God is. Because you had godly parents and good parents and parents that loved you and parents that encouraged you and taught you the right way. And so maybe it's not that far, but maybe you didn't. Maybe you had a a dad who abandoned you or neglected you. And so your image of God is a God who won't be there when you need Him. Your image of God is a God who you can't depend on. We all default, we all get our original image of God from our parents. So if you want to know what you misperceive about God, look at the flaws of your parents and you're projecting them on Him. And only through the renewing of the mind do those things ever go away. We also get an image of God from things we've heard. We live in this collective soup where we've uh, created the American God. I'll, I'll prove it to you. God helps those who? Wrong. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> I tricked you. You've been waiting all week to be tricked. No, that's not in the Bible. And it's not even true. 
the Bible says God helps everybody. He makes the rain to fall on the righteous and the evil alike. Because God loves everybody. He doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps everybody. We also get our image from God um, from how we want God to be. Right? So, so our image of God is shaped by who we want God to be. So we think, say things like, well, what kind of God would allow this? Or what kind of God would do this? Or, or if I were God, I would do this. And I can't think of anything more dangerous than worshiping who we want God to be. If we're worshiping who we want God to be, then we're worshiping the God that we made up. And if we're worshiping the God that we made up, what does that make us? Makes us God. You see how confusing it gets? So we, think, so we say things like, God would never give me these desires if he didn't want me to live this way. We say God would never give me these passions if I weren't supposed to act on them. And what we have to say is, I know better about what I'm supposed to do than God does. That's what we say when we create our own God. The saddest verse in the entire Bible is the verse that says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's where we live. That is our present, current culture. We, at best, in our culture, we treat God sort of like a genie in a lamp. When I need something, I rub the lamp, and I say, God, you know, I got this final exam. And I didn't really study, and I didn't really listen. But come on. Just this once. Can't you help a guy out? You know, Jesus, please. <laughs> then you go in, you squeak a B-plus out, and you say, great, thanks. I'll see you when I get cancer. Next time I need something real bad, I'll look you up. But I'm okay now. I just need to get through the test. Romans 121 says, for although they knew God, this is our culture, although they knew God, America knows God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We live in a dark and confused culture, and as we live in this culture, we breathe the darkness in. And it, and it mixes with our faith sometimes. Number three, when we have the wrong image of God, we worship the wrong thing. So the crippled man was healed. The people went crazy and started worshiping Paul and Barnabas. Why? They gave them credit for the miracle. Why did they give them credit for the miracle? The people in Lystra thought Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes. Who's Zeus and Hermes? Those are, are um, uh, Greek gods from Greek mythology. Why would they think they're Greek gods? Because according to legend, Zeus and Hermes disguised themselves as, as human beings and they visited that part of the country and they went door to door until they got to a thousand doors. They knocked on a thousand doors and asked for people to allow them to come in and stay the night. And everybody said no till finally they got to the 1,001 door to this elderly couple and the elderly couple let them in. And Zeus and Hermes, according to the legend, turned that older couple's house into a temple. And, and as they left, they sent a flood to destroy 1,000 of the other homes who rejected them. Now watch. That's their image of God. 
So why are they now worshiping Paul and Barnabas? Because their image of God is wrong. They think Zeus and Hermes has visited again. They think God is angry and easily offended and that God will disguise himself and he'll trick you into seeing if you're really a good person or not. And if you don't pass the test, he'll punish you by destroying your house with the flood. They think this is a test. You'd be going, yes, bring the fatted calf quickly. I don't have flood insurance. You know, bring the bull, cut them in half, throw reach, whatever they want. Right? It sounds so silly to us because we don't believe in Greek mythology. But we have our own mythology. We have our own misperceptions about God. If I come to church, the roof's going to fall in. Who gave you that image about God? I had a mother once ask me if her child was suffering because uh, because, uh, uh, that's how God was punishing her for not serving him earlier in her life. Where, Where does that image of God come from? Some people think God is mad at them and wants to punish them and can't forgive them. Some people think that God wants to control them and take all the fun out of life. Some people think God has neglected them and abandoned them. Where do these images come from? All these dilapidated images of God lead us to worship the wrong things. And our hearts are so easily, so easily pulled away to worship anything but God. So what do we... Where do our wrong images of God lead us to worship in America? I think we worship a preferred lifestyle. We look on Facebook and we say, look what everybody else is doing. I'm sitting here at home in my pajamas watching Netflix. Wish I was out doing all that. And we strive and we reach And we worship athletes, and we worship entertainers, and we worship famous people. And here's the problem. People were not intended to be worshipped. Why do so many young stars, why do so many young athletes crash and burn? Because they can't, when you deify a person, they can't hold up under the weight and expectation that is put on them by society. Why do you think it is we're having so much marriage trouble in our country now? Because if you're looking for the ideal special person, someone out there to make all your dreams come true, to fulfill the inner longings of your heart, and to make you happier than you've ever been, you've deified them. And you're expecting something from them only God can give you. Your marriage can't hold up under the weight of that expectation. It will break it. I think in America, uh, we worship our family. That's why we have uh, parents rushing kids to every sport field and organized activity and piano lesson and swimming lesson and dance and asylum. That's why they have bags under their eyes and they're broke and their 14-year-olds are having injuries that college students used to have. Because we're just grinding them in the ground, grinding them in the ground because we're reaching to fulfill this inner longing and we're looking for it in the wrong place. They believe just a little bit more will do it and it's never enough. That's why we're hyperactive. We've bought into the life. We just go all in on family and cram our life with activity and every possible experience under the sun. Then we'll finally have peace. We'll finally have joy. We'll finally have fulfillment that meets all our needs. And what happens when we worship those things and they don't deliver what we expected? We blame God. When we worship the gods that we've created and they fail us, then we blame the God who created us. 
What a mistake. The priest of Zeus and the people of the town have brought animal sacrifices and wreaths to worship Paul and Barnabas. Look how Paul and Barnabas react. Verse 14, they're not having any of it. But when when Apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes, which is a Jewish way of saying, uh, of grieving, of sadness, of brokenheartedness. No, 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 don't do this thing. They're tearing their clothes. And they rushed out to the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're We're not gods. We didn't do the miracle. Jesus did the miracle. You've given us credit for something only God can do. We're bringing you good news. Telling you to turn, look at this, from these worthless idols to the living God. What would happen if we in America stopped worshiping idols? Things that cannot produce life or joy or peace. And look, the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it. Verse 19, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. Now remember, this is what Pastor Mark was sharing last week. Antioch to Iconium, they stayed in Iconium for a while, and now they're in Lystra. And now these Jews have come from all the way over at at Antioch, picked up a few cousins in Iconium. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So here here they go again, going to the Kentucky Derby. They're gone again. (laughs) So the Jews come to stir up trouble. Now, just to give you perspective, okay, Antioch is, is about 110 miles away. Iconium is around 20 miles away. So, so, so the one group has gone 110 miles, another group has gone 20 miles, and, and the only purpose they have is to try their best to get the people of Lystra not to believe in Jesus. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how passionate non-believers can be? Why are atheists so fired up? You ever ask that? Why are they so fired up? Why are you dedicating your whole life to trying to prove uh, disprove a God you don't even believe exists. What's the deal? I, I mean, just imagine if we applied that same logic to, I don't know, the Easter bunny. I'll tell you this Easter, it's over. <laughs> Pastels, gone. Paws Easter eggs, out. We're, we're boycotting. Cadbury candy, done. We're eating licorice this Easter. It's over. That furry little dumb bunny, I don't know why any... Can you imagine just ramping up a campaign to disprove the Easter bunny? Why don't people do that? I mean, if you don't believe, why don't you go after it? Here's why. The Easter bunny doesn't try to tell you how to live. But God does. God has an expectation on your life that will lead you to freedom. And Easter Bunny don't. Because Easter Bunny don't care. He just wants money. (laughs) The depth of sin says, God, you will not tell me what to do with my life. And as Christians, we say, my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. And that's offensive to the world. 
It's offensive. Isn't it amazing how, we, how fickle we humans can be? That's what happens here. One minute, Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes. The next minute, we're going to drag them out and stone them to death. And it's only separated by one argument. <laughs> they went from idolized to demonized in one argument because they didn't fit what the people's image of God was. As long as they fit the image of God, they were happy worshiping them, but once they realized they weren't, it was over. So how do you and I get the image of God right? How do you and I deal with our own misperceptions that we've been given from life and experience and culture and wherever else? Number four, only Jesus is the exact image of God. Hebrews chapter 1, follow, follow these three verses with me. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways in the Old Testament. But in these last days, in the New Testament, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. Now look at this next verse. This next sentence is very important. The Son, you want to know who Jesus is? Is the radiance of God's glory. <laughs> Jesus is the radiant. He is the sun ray. He is the sunlight of the glory of God. And furthermore, He's more than that. He's not just a light that shines. He is the exact representation of God's being. The exact representation. So, what is, how do we know that our image is right? Look at Jesus. What is God like? He's like Jesus. How do I get to know God? Get to know Jesus. How do I experience God? Invite Jesus into your life. We're not saying that there aren't other religions in the world that can improve your life. That's not true. There are religions in the world that can improve your life. But there's only one person that can save your soul from darkness. And that's Jesus. Jesus Christ is God and he fully reveals God to us. So if we can't see Jesus doing it, we shouldn't be doing it. And if we see Jesus doing it, we should be doing it. It's that simple, and it's that complicated. <laughs> Why were Paul and Barnabas almost killed? Think, think about the whole story. There's a miracle. They're coming to worship. And then they're saying, no, 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 don't do this. They get stirred up, and then they try to stone Paul to death. Why are Paul and Barnabas nearly killed? Because people want the miracles of Jesus, but they don't want the message of Jesus. And that's where we are. What is the message of Jesus? The message of Jesus is that he is the only clear and the only correct image of God. That's the message of Jesus. So how did the church go viral? Look, the more pluralistic our society becomes, the more important it is that we understand this, this rich truth that drove the church all over the known world and ultimately to the shores of America. How did the church go viral? They refused to accept 
any image of God but Jesus himself. They rejected every other image, their own and everybody else's. So here's the last thought for today. Number five, God wants to restore his image in you. God's image was put on you. The Bible says he created them male and female. And in his image, he created them. But when sin entered the world, it broke that image. It, it, it cracked that image. We went from being perfect and perfectly loved to perfectly broken. But here's the thing. Only Jesus can restore you. Only Jesus can heal what ails your soul. It's not going to be found on Facebook, and it's not going to be found in the American dream, and it's not going to be found by worshiping your kids or worshiping your spouse or, or worshiping a, a, a superstar or anything else. You, you'll just widen the fault line in your soul. And so that, that's, a, that's a good, truthful message to believers and non-believers alike. Because we're, we're living in the culture where we're breathing the darkness in, even as believers. So I, so I want to end this morning with Romans 8, 28. How, how many of you know, know this verse, Romans 8, 28? How, how many of you know this verse? Do you, do you recognize the reference, some of you, half of you? Romans 8, 28. Here's what it says. We know... That in everything, God works for the good of those who love him. They are the people he called because that was his plan. Okay, so, uh, another translation says, we believe that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Most of us have heard this verse, even if you don't know where, where it's found. This idea that God works together for our good, but I've got a question for you this morning. What exactly does for our good mean? Does he allow each one of us to define what that goodness is? Or does he actually have something in mind when he says, I'm going to take bad things, and I'm going to take good things, and I'm going to take frustrating circumstances, and I'm going to take things you didn't see coming, and I'm going to take problems, and I'm going to take trouble, and I'm going to force them together to work for your good. How would God define what does good mean? What is really, what is really good for us? Well, verse 29, which we almost never read, tells us. God knew them before he made the world. Watch. And he chose them to be like his son. What will God do? God will take the things in your life and he will command them to work in such a way that even though they're not all good, they will produce the image of Jesus inside you. You know why? Because that's what's good. For you and I to become more like Jesus is the best gift God could ever give us. Isn't that right? So I've got good news for us this morning. God's going to use whatever you're going through to help you become like Jesus. Isn't it nice to know 
that although God doesn't cause it all, He will not waste any of it. He will use it all. So maybe, maybe this morning you're struggling through some difficult circumstance, and if you're just honest, you're wondering, what good could come of this? <laughs> how, how, how's this going to matter? Some of the hardest suffering that you and I will ever do are the suffering that seems pointless. Like, what good is it? I'm not here to try to explain or justify all that because I don't understand it myself. I am here to remind you and to remind me. Because if I'm honest with you, there's some days I have a hard time believing that somehow God is using even this mess and somehow God is using even this pain and somehow God is using even this senselessness to make me like Jesus. Now I can't explain that to you. I can only tell you that's what the Bible says. And I can only tell you that Jesus invites you to believe it. And he invites you to receive it. So would you stand with me this morning? And I want to ask our prayer team if you'd come. And if you just find a place you could stand quietly and just close your eyes. We're early today and I want to give you, I want to give you some space this morning. Just a little bit of time to respond with every eye closed and with your heart open. Today, if you are struggling through some circumstances and you're wondering, you know, how am I, how am I ever going to make sense out of this? How, what good is this ever going to do? Or maybe you've had a painful event in your past and you just hadn't been able to get past it. Maybe you're just at a point today where, where you need presence of Jesus. You need the touch of God on your life. Boy, I've got, I've got good news for you and I've got good news for me. All things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose. So this morning, if you would just be honest enough to say, you know, I'm, I'm having some struggles, I'm having some trials, I have a need in my life that's not met and I don't know how it's going to be met. And today, I need prayer. Can I tell you, God will make all those things work together for good if you will give those things to Him. But you have to give them to Him. You have to surrender them to Him. You can't just carry them by yourself and hold on to them so tightly that God is saying, I want to help. I want to be involved. But I'm not going to take them from you. You have to give them to me. And so, with every eye closed, if you're here this morning and you say, I have a need. I have an issue. I have a deal. And I want you to know it's okay to not be okay. You don't have to be okay just because you come to church. I think this is the best place to come when you're not okay. But if you just say, you know what, I'm struggling today. I have an unmet need of some kind. And today, I want to give it to Jesus. Would you just lift your hand and say, 
man, that's me. That, that's a move of faith to lift your hand and say, God, I want to give this need to you today. Yeah, yeah, just lift your hand. That's a step of faith just to say, God, I'm, I'm, just, going, I'm just going to admit it now. I'm going to confess it. I lift my hand and say, God, I want to give it to you. God, I want to give it to you. I'm not going to carry this by myself. God, today, I want to give this name to you. Come on, just lift your hand. Come on, just lift it up again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to give it to you, Lord. Here's what I want you to do. If you lifted your hand, in just a minute, I'm going to start to pray. When I do, I want you to begin to move to one of our prayer teams. Bible says where two or three or more are gathered together, there I am with you. There's power and agreement in prayer. I want you to find one of our prayer team and I want you to walk toward them and I want you just to begin to pray. You can say to them, I have, I have a need and today I'm going to give it to God. I promise you, when you let that need go, something powerful is going to begin to happen in your soul. Jesus is going to meet you there and His promise is going to become true in your life that all things are going to work together for the good, for your good. So if you lifted your hand, I want you to come right now. I want you to come right now. I don't want you to hesitate. I don't want you to look around and see what anybody else is doing. If you need to get out, I want you to just look at the person beside you and say, hey, I, I, need, to, I need to move. I want you to come right now. Lord Jesus, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw every person that needs prayer. I pray you would draw every person who you, you are inviting to a miracle. You are inviting to a promise. You are inviting to your presence. You are inviting to work these things together on their behalf. Lord, I pray you would draw right now. Lord, I pray your presence would be strong. Your purposes would advance. Lord, I pray the kingdom of darkness would, would be held back. And Lord, I pray that your peace would come in this moment. Holy Spirit, just move now. Just move now. As the worship team begins to sing, I want you to come right now if you need prayer. I want you to move. You Don't wait.